This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. for Military Podcast. Appreciate you coming on. Actually, it was through Instagram that we connected, Greg, and at that time frame, you had shared a story that I found just um, very interesting and really hit home in so many different ways. And I thought, all right, well, share it out there on our groups page on Facebook, because I figured a lot of the guys there, if they didn't interact, that at least read it, and it might bring some kind of thought or action thereafter. And Paul and I kind of discussed this whole thing ahead of time. And I can't wait to dive into the whole aspect of this, because we have uh, a lot to, to bring into it. So anyway, welcome to the Mentors Military Podcast, brother. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. Yeah. So, Greg, I want to get in a little bit at first about your background, and uh, then we'll jump ahead and get into the story. But tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, where you came from and why you even entered the military in the first place. Okay. So, I grew up in a farm town north of Seattle called Stomish. And I, like a lot of young rangers, wasn't ready for college. I didn't have aspirations of continuing education at the time. And this was pre-9-11. This was in 1999. So, you know, there wasn't combat going on, but I just knew I needed to do something different. And I ended up talking to a recruiter. And I didn't get a RIP contract. I just got airborne infantry. But then I started thinking, hey, if I'm going to do something for four years, I might as well take it as far as I can go, you know? Yeah. So at airborne, at airborne school, I put in for RIP and uh, went through that and then got sent up to second bat up at Fort Lewis. And that was, I got there in early 2000. So. Okay. When was it you went through rip Paul? I went through rip in summer of 2006. Okay. Real similar. Oh, okay. I got an airborne contract and then I was like, I, I got to try out for this. I might as yeah. well. So yeah, they had a, they had one of the guys come down for regiment and they're like, Hey, raise your hand if you want to be a ranger. And I was like, Oh me, I'll try that. You know? And they're like, all right, fall out, right face. <laughs> it just took us on a death run right there on the spot, you know? So, uh, yeah, I, I did that. I spent four years in the regiment. And then in 2004, like a lot of Rangers did at that time, I got out and I joined the contracting world. And I was with Triple Canopy for about four or five years. Did that. And then I got out and got into law enforcement. So I'm currently a police officer outside of Seattle. And uh, I run a jiu-jitsu academy up here as well. That's kind of my thing that's uh, allowed me to kind of focus and have like that community and stuff after I left the military. So, yeah, it's been good. Oh, sure. Yeah. And you're right. Most guys, you know, we talk about this a lot, uh, end up spending, you know, four, six years in regiment. That's about it. You typically spend less than that time period. And for a lot of the people listening, you know, they're probably wondering why, but geez, God, man, the burnout rate and the stuff that you guys do, it's a, it's a high intensity 24 seven type of lifestyle. No. And I, and I think, I mean, my personal opinion of the regiment, it's a good place to start a military career. But I think for me anyways, it would have made sense to go on and do something different. You know, I actually uh, I went in and became a warrant officer after my four years in the regiment and was going to flight school down at Fort Rucker and hemorrhaged my retina. Oh, during a cro- yeah. During a CrossFit workout and uh, CrossFit of all things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah cro- I, I joke. I say I own a CrossFit gym and Jitsu Academy now. So I joke. I say CrossFit saved my life. Because there's probably a high tension wire somewhere with my name on it, but uh, no, I, w- I was medically discharged after I hemorrhaged my retina. They brought me in, and the uh, the surgeon was there, and he's like, "Hey, look at it. Look at this. It's you're in the flight program, and you have an eye injury. We can reclass you to a different warrant because I was already a warrant officer, 
or we can med you out. And I was like, I'll just get out and, and figure out something else. So, yeah. You know, a lot of the guys, though, don't leave uh, the regiment, though, and go to the conventional forces just because they don't feel like they want to go to that lifestyle, you know? And- uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at Ranger history, that is what initially, originally, we it's, were it's supposed to be designed to do, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. It, the whole idea of it was for you to rotate back, and so that you can, you know, go back and train the conventional forces and some of the same concepts and theories. And but absolutely, but we know Paul and I know somebody that's been there. What is he going on now? Twelve or fifteen years now? Um, somewhere in there. Fifteen. Yeah. It's going on 15. 15 years that he's been with regiment. I mean, I think you ought to get some kind of ribbon, medal, something for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have a special identifier now. You get a uniform identifier in addition to all your other MOS modifiers. No way. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome then. Yeah, so, I, uh, I was still in. I was just in time to get it before I got out. Okay. But it's a real yeah. similar story. I, I spent my last year in the regular army in Korea, and that was some of the most rewarding time as an NCO I've ever had. Because there's just raw talent that has no leadership. I shouldn't say no leadership, but yeah, they but poor, definitely poor leadership compared to the regiment, you know. Yeah, or or good leadership that doesn't isn't up to speed yet. They haven't had the example that you get when you're battalion. So yeah, and you know, like being like being in battalion is a blessing and a curse for me because I learned at a young age as a, a 20 year old ranger what good leadership looks like and what an organiz an organization like that that you know has. Everybody there wants to be there. Everybody there strives to be better. And then when I got out, and I, I've, I've been through a couple different law enforcement agencies hoping to kind of find like that kind of structure. Yeah. And I get to places and I'm like, what is going on around here? You know? <laughs> well, so I've often wondered, like uh, SWAT, if, uh, you know, that team camaraderie and the fact that it's a lot more intense and everything might be something a little bit closer. I think it is. I was on uh, I was on the SWAT team. Well, we were called the SRT team when I was right. in Los Angeles, uh, special response team. It was a 16-man team, a lot of entries, a lot of high-risk warrants and stuff like that. And I think just the nature of doing things that are hard and dangerous bring people together. Because it's no different than being in the regiment. When you know you have to rely on the person to your right and your left, it just kind of bonds you in a way that you don't get outside of those kind of environments, you know? Yeah. So. Oh, sure. But at the same time now, like fast forward, I mean, I'm 38 now. I've been out of the regiment for a long time. My new department, they're always like, hey, join this. you want to join the SWAT team? You want to join the SWAT team? It's like, you know what? I got three little kids. I got a side I, business that I'm trying to run. And uh, yeah, it's kind of yeah. nice being past all that stuff, too. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's still a lot of guys, you know, that you'll see, I'm sure, out there on social media that still want to live back in that moment. And you know, they, they spent three, four years in regiment, but they, they don't move forward. You know what I mean? They don't move. Yeah, past oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I, I have a big theory on that. I think that the inability to move forward is a big factor in PTSD yeah. and veteran depression. You know, I've, we've all been deployed. We've all seen terrible things. We've all been exposed to lots of violence and some guys go home and are completely fine. And some guys go home and it tears them apart. And, and I mean, I'm not an expert on this. I can't give you data or anything, but my personal observations, it's the guys that go home and aren't capable of moving past it with either hobbies or family or new career paths, things that engage them. And the guys that like want to look back on their glory days and that defines them. I think that starts to become toxic for people, you know? And I always say I don't want to be one of those veterans walking around at 70 with all my ribbons on my hat, like being proud of what I did when I was 22. I want to be proud of what I'm doing right now. And I want to have visions of what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. And I think that's important for veterans. And for me, for a long time, it was jujitsu. I built a big academy. I have a, a really strong team. And now me and my wife are coming up with some new plans and some new adventures. I think that's the thing that veterans need to stay focused on because you take a guy who, you know, he goes from being a ranger, he does seven combat deployments, and then he comes home and he's stocking shelves at Home Depot. Where do you go with that, you know? Right. I think that's a big contributing factor to depression and all the problems veterans have. Absolutely. And it's primarily because they don't know what their purpose or passion is. They never took the time to decompress to figure that aspect out. 
Yep. No, absolutely. And I know the military is getting better with it now, from what I understand, because, I mean, the wars have been going on forever now. But the guys that were there at the beginning, like, I got home from Afghanistan and ETS in about a week. And it's like, all right, mm. thanks, for, thanks for playing, you know. That, so, that sounds insane. It sounds like <laughs> recklessly insane to put a young person through that. Yeah. So like it was formative years. Just here so, you go. The Good story luck. you got the GI Bill. Exactly, right? The story that I wrote was in 2003. And uh, the regiment at the time was doing three-month deployments. We were rotating in and out. And uh, it was like a high-op tempo, but then you'd be home and you'd decompress. And so we deployed, and we were there. Like the story was in late January. We were supposed to redeploy home in March. And the rest of the, in- the, rest of the regiment invaded Iraq on March 19, 2003. So they said, hey, guys, just so you know, there's no replacements coming. We don't know how long we're going to be in country. And it ended up being a little over six months, which for Rangers is like, this is forever, you know. Right. <laughs> Conventional forces, <laughs> that would have been a walk in the park. Right. But uh, no, and I actually got stop lost and uh, I didn't get out on my original ETS date because I was deployed. So as soon as I got home in August of two th- late August of 2003, they just rushed everything because some of us were stop loss. And they're like, all right, let's push these guys out, push them out. No lie. And, Not even like yeah. a three month, six months buffer. Just oh, no, right the- no. Oh, wow. Yeah, we got we got home. I don't remember the exact date, but I was out of the military in under a month. Yeah, I think that's almost criminal, like Paul said. I think there's something wrong with that because you need that opportunity to come back. Again, even if you're decompressing as a member of a unit and returning home, don't push that guy out the door because then that could lead to the other effects that you just described, you know, depression, anxiety, loss of sense of purpose or, you know, team camaraderie, those types of things that then start causing problems through the military transition. Yep. And I, and like I said, I mean, that was, that was right. That was only a couple of years in with the war. So I think that from what I hear, I, I think the military is doing a better job with it now, but This is new for everybody, all the way up and down the chain of command, you know. So let's take you back to that time period um, that you mentioned, because you in 2003 is when you were, was it January 2003, I guess it was, when you were doing QRF at uh, Bagram. Yep. So this was our second deployment to Afghanistan, and both deployments we took, uh, we filled the billet of QRF, which... You know, like I wrote about in the story, it's necessary and we need to have someone staffing that, but it's also really boring, you know? Yeah. You're just, you're just sitting on the airfield 24-7. You have to be within, you know, a couple minutes from getting that call and going out. And the calls, at least for our deployments, were few and far between. So it was uh, a lot of reading books, working out and fighting with each other and being bored and all that stuff that young rangers do, you know? QRF puts you in a, in a weird place, too, because at least for me, it's like you want to go out, you want to do the mission, but like you can't really do a mission unless something bad. Exactly. Like, unfortunate happened to somebody else. So you're like, it's a weird, weird way to exist for a whole deployment. Yeah. Now, both. So we went outside of the wire on only two real world missions while we staffed the QRF, that deployment, and both of them were downed aircrafts. One was a C-130 and then one was the, uh, the one that I talked about in the story. So tell us a little bit about that QRF that you came down to Blackhawk. Uh, it was a 160th, I guess. And um, you guys weren't totally aware of, I guess, everything that was there other than the fact that it was a down helicopter and you guys were going to go in and, and uh, provide security and, and see if there was anybody that needed assistance, right? Yeah. So we got notified and, you know, it takes time. They had to do investigations and everything to figure out what led to the crash. But at the time, we didn't know if it was pilot air or enemy engagement or what it was. All we knew was that a Blackhawk had went down close to Bagram. It was only a few miles away. And uh, we wanted to go out there and set in security and extract the pilots. So half of the half of the platoon drove out on our Humvees because we're like, you know, it's, it's only a few miles out. What's going to be the fastest way to get there? So they divided us in half. Half of us drove out right on the spot. The other half waited and got on the the other Blackhawks that were down at Bagram Airfield. And we got there almost at the exact same time and got to the helicopter and it was a mess. It was uh, what ended up happening is they were actually just doing gun runs out in the desert practicing. And it was pilot air didn't pull up in time and just went in like a dirt dart. So we got out there. 
Yeah, and the helicopter was just an absolute mess. And it blew apart. Fiberglass was everywhere. And got up to it, set in a security perimeter, and started trying to extract the pilots. When you arrive on a scene like that, it, now I've been to a couple of them, you get an idea if anyone's going to make it or not. You know, it was uh, it was pretty grim. And all, we got a, a heartbeat on one of them. And, you know, we became hopeful. But in the end, they all ended up passing. And uh, we extracted them as quickly as we could. And an element took them back to Bagram, trying to uh, provide medical attention for the guy that we thought might make it. But after that, my squad ended up staying out there and providing security around the bird for the rest of the night. Because a decision was being made, are we going to blow it in place, or it's so close, are we going to recover the bird and take it back to Bagram? And that's what we ended up doing the next morning, was was taking being part of the recovery and taking it back to the airbase. Of course, you know, you talked about, and and those who've been there, January in the desert, that's that's a cold experience. <laughs> yeah, I always joke, you know, I enjoy mountaineering. I climb Mount Rainier once a year. Uh, the cold in Afghanistan gets into your bones. There's something different going on there, you know? And, uh, yeah, when we were, we were extracting them, they had a bunch of cold weather gear. They had boots that had, that had like, fur linings and big parkas and stuff and so after the mission was everything was secure and the guys were extracted yeah we had that we had that conversation like let's go back to the bird and we saw that cold weather gear the guys out here are freezing and you know like oh you just pulled that off a guy that that you were extracting an hour ago but at the same time i was an nco my thought process was we're still outside of the wire we don't know what's we don't know if this was shot down we don't know if there's a secondary attack coming like we need to maintain combat effectiveness right and so we wore all their stuff and we we used their 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 whoobies and their you know all that stuff cuz i don't know i think like if any of us were to be injured or killed in combat it's it's understood that whatever you need take you know yeah. and i'm sure that those guys would have had the same perspective on that you know oh, i would agree definitely and so i think it was about this time frame that you also i guess uh, noticed in some of the site or it was right before this that there were pieces of uniform that had been ripped off one of the chief warrant officers of one of the pilots yeah so as we were extracting uh, tom gibbons i noticed uh after we pulled them out i looked down on the ground and his flight suit patches had been ripped off because they're Velcro and they're laying on the ground. And I looked, I'm, it's, it's crazy. I remember this to this day. I looked down and I saw a flag and his patch with his name on it, which you saw in the pictures that mm -hmm. I sent you. Um, and then right next to it was a, a piece of Blackhawk, probably just about this big around. It's just a little sliver of fiberglass that was in a, like a, a small circle. And they were right next to his patches. And I scooped them all up and just put them in my cargo pocket. And I don't know why I did that, but I just, it just happened. You know, I looked down, there they were, and I scooped them up. Yeah. And so I didn't think anything of that moment until we got back to Bagram the next day after we recovered the bird. And we were downloading all our gear. And I, I pulled out of my pocket and I looked at them and I was like, hmm, you know, I guess I'll just throw these in my footlocker and... They ended up making the trip back with me. And then, like I said in the article, I got home and I threw them in my dresser. It's actually that dresser that's right behind me right now. <laughs> and they, they sat in there for 14 years, you know? And it's kind of weird because I thought, you know, everybody's connected via the internet now. Right. It's not hard to get a hold of people. So the thought of reaching out to her, or I didn't even know if he was married or if he had kids or what. But I thought, you know what, like, I wonder if this is something that they would want to hear or if these like little pieces of, of what I collected from the crash site is something that they would be interested in. But then I started to think like, I mean, I know America has this perception of what a soldier is, but there's a lot of military families that are broken, that are like plagued with alcoholism and abuse, like I thought about all those things and, and maybe like his family has wanted to move past that and bringing that up and, and discussing these events with their family members would be something that uh, 
maybe they didn't want to experience. So, you know, we talked about this and it would, so part of us, Paul and I, you know, kind of felt like, okay, um, no matter what you do here in this situation, Greg, your action is going to cause a reaction and it's going to cause something to occur, positive or negative. And at this point, mm-hmm. when you're thinking about this whole thing, you're not quite sure how the outcome is going to be. You may go into the, go into the situation thinking it's going to be a positive outcome. And, oh, my gosh, they're going to love this whole thing. Yet they, to your point, may have already moved on. They may be remarried. They may have tried, you know, with their secondary post-traumatic stress or whatever to move past this whole thing. And you're going to have them relive this experience. At the same token... For you and for some of the guys out there, you know, Paul brought up, um, do you really want to relive these painful memories maybe yourself? And we're not talking about just this specific situation, but living back and thinking back in the past, whether it's a photo or a piece of equipment that you have or something of that nature. And it really got Paul and I to, to thinking about how much you may have toiled with this or we would have toiled with it had we been in the same situation. Uh huh. And, you know, I actually think I looked at it like the opposite of that. I didn't think I would reach out to her and have this warm welcome. I thought there was a good there was a good chance that this could go bad and that she wouldn't want to hear the story or wouldn't want to be part of that. Yeah. That whole uh, the operation and, and, and hear about what we did and what we went through. And so obviously that's why I, I, I sat on it for so long. But I also think that that ended up being kind of a blessing in disguise because, and me and Kelly, that's his wife's name, Kelly Gibbons, we've talked about this since. I think that period of time kind of allowed us all to kind of decompress and process everything. And when we did finally come together, I think it was, I think it was good timing. So it was, it was pretty good how that all worked out. So maybe you, know, maybe you tell us, how was it that you uh, contacted her? I mean, did you kind of stalk and do the Google whole thing and find her via yeah, Facebook so, or something? Or? You know, we moved, up from, we moved up from California and moved all our stuff and moved the night, moved my dresser and our bedroom set. And I looked at all that stuff and it kind of made it fresh in my mind. And I was talking to a friend about it and, and you know, I mentioned this in the story. She goes, listen, that's part of his story and his family deserves that that's up to them if they want to be part of this or not it's not up to you and she goes if i was his wife i know that i would want to be filled in on everything that happened to be brought in and be a part of this Mm. and so you know with with that guidance i said you know what it's time to just reach out and if she takes it well she does and if she doesn't then you know i i'm doing this out of the best intentions so I ended up just, I found her daughter. I did some Google searches and some articles and found out his, uh, his wife's name and his daughter's name. And at the time of the crash, his daughters were nine weeks old and three years old. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. And so I did the math and I'm like, okay, now this girl should be, you know, 17 or whatever it was. Every 17-year-old girl has a Facebook account. <laughs> right. And so I ended up finding his daughter on Facebook. But I also, there was no way I was going to dump this on a 17-year-old girl, yeah. you know? Yeah. So then through Facebook, I looked at her different connections and whatnot and was able to find her mom, and that was Kelly. And so then I wrote the letter to Kelly that you guys read. Yeah. What what a powerful, um, I mean, you did a really good job of laying this whole thing out and providing, you know, the story and all the information um, you know, was it something that you kind of spent a lot of time trying to, to think about just how to write the words, how to, how to put it onto paper? Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I mean, I, I toiled with the idea for a long time, even reaching out to her, but once I made the decision that, okay, I'm moving forward with this. Yeah. I think I'd, I think the email had been sent a day or two later, you know? Right. So I wrote it and I wrote it in a manner as you read I'm trying to reach out to you, but in the like kindest, most unintrusive way possible, you know, and luckily for me, because to this day, if, if, if she had a really bad reaction to that, I'd probably feel bothered by it. Yeah. Uh, You know, I'd, I'd probably regret reaching out to her, but it was really crazy 
to hear and, and see her response. And uh, she told me right away, she's like, you know, we never heard details about that night. I've always wondered what happened and, and who was there. And, and what I've come to find out is little tiny pieces of information that I never would have thought twice about are really powerful in helping family members find closure. You know, one thing his daughter asked me, and I mean, it's, it's been so long, maybe, it, maybe it's an OPSEC violation, but I told her, she's like, what were the grid coordinates where my dad passed? Because she wanted to look that up on Google Earth and just be able to see where on the planet did my dad lose his life. Mm. And uh, it's crazy because I never would have thought that something like that would even be of any interest to anyone. But and, and, and that ultimately is why I wrote this story, because making that connection with people, you learn that there's lots of things that we hold from our experience that are very important to other people. And we might not think that they are, you know. And Kelly's asked me a lot of different questions. Um, she's asked to get in touch with other members of my squad that were there. I've sent her photos of the Rangers that did that operation. Oh, wow. And yeah, ultimately, I ended up sending her the patches and that piece of his Black Hawk helicopter, too. And uh, she said that the box arrived in the mail and it, it sat in their kitchen for, I don't, I don't know how long it was, but it was like a month or two because she had to build up the courage and really be ready to accept those items. And her and her daughter opened them up and it helped them get closure. So, you know, it's weird. You don't think that a little piece of fabric would help someone get closure. You know, it doesn't really make sense when you look at like the amount of grief and loss that they have faced. But when you step outside of that and you realize these people were completely out of touch with what happened that night, they lost the most important person in their life and she's like, I don't even, I never knew any details. And, she, and it's been incredibly healing for her. And so through seeing how much this helped Kelly, that is what made me want to tell our story. And yeah. I reached out to her too before I wrote that. I said, you know, I think this has been good for both of us. I think we can both agree. And why not share that with other people? Because every veteran that's went over there has been through things, seen things, done things that have been hurtful or maybe they've lost people with that were with them or rescued other people. There's someone else out there in the world that making that connection and hearing that story would be good for them, you know? Yeah. So that's why we, we decided to move forward and, and release the story. Or a veteran that may have come to the same situation that you have. They may have a, someone else's, you know, piece of equipment or something like that that they've held on to with no clue that, that how the impact might be of a, a family member. Yeah. Paul, you had a look, you know, our take on this as well, as it relates to, you know, your own experiences and at the same token, bring back memories for you. Yeah, that's I, I wrote a letter to a gold star wife probably three or four times a year since 2010 and wrote it and wrote it never could send it never could finish. I could barely finish, you know, the first few sentences about bawling my eyes out and, you know, Part of it was like, you know, I'm, I'm imagining reopening this wound or whatever. And then I finally got the balls to write the thing and send it. And, uh, you know, we re I reconnected with this person who was important to me and important to my brother. And, you know, she felt that connection as well. And so it was good. But I, I remember grappling with the same things, uh, like you're saying, what is this appropriate or, you know, is this just something I should just keep in my back pocket or. But it's interesting what you say, like these these things we hold that are little details to us but they're so important to other people and I, I haven't really experienced it in the same context except from from my own mother you know when i was writing the book um and a couple of times i've had ranger buddies and introduced them to her you know after our service and she's like she'll she'll latch onto a detail that we think is just inane like nothing and it it opens up the whole picture in their mind you know it's interesting you said that they're just kind of in the dark for so long we sort of take for granted that you know, because we were there and we can see it and do we mm -hmm. see the rocks and the pebbles and stuff. But it's if you don't have, you know, first firsthand account of that. I mean, that's a big, big mystery, you know, when you're in special operations or even regular operations and you die overseas. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that you just would never be privy to. And I think that it's interesting to hear that those details have so much value. 
I'm kind of curious, like, did, did you feel a sort of catharsis from this? Did this help you, you know, move oh, from that? 100%, 100%. You know, I, I, like most veterans, went through a period of uh, just kind of struggling with where I fit in and, and uh, you know, went through some counseling and, and it was hard on the marriage. All, all those typical things that you hear about, I don't, I don't think anyone gets out scot-free from any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I contracted for so long after I got out of the regiment that for me, the war wasn't over until 2009. You know, even though I ETS'd the truth, I mean, I, I saw more combat as a contractor than I did with the regiment. And so it wasn't till you know, 2009, 2010, when I started having to decompress and, and think about the things that we did and the things that I saw. And... <clears throat> I think it's very normal for young rangers or really anybody in the military to just be like, I'm good. I got it. You know? Right. Yeah. I, it was a blessing in disguise. I went to the VA because I, I hemorrhaged my retina. Right. And one of my buddies is like, Hey, if you were medically discharged, you need to go to the VA and get that documented. So I went to the VA and I said, Hey, I need to, you know, have someone look at my eye and, and get this documented and they said, okay, well, we want to do a full evaluation of you, mental and physical. You're going to do an entire physical, and then you're going to sit down with therapists and all this stuff. And at the time, I'm thinking, like, this is stupid. I hurt my eye. You know, I don't need to waste my time sitting down with a counselor. But it is what it is, right? That's the process they wanted to put me through. And I sat down with this counselor, and she specializes in special operations combat veterans. And I sat down in her office, and she asked me about five questions and I was in tears and she looked at me and she goes, I know some of you guys better than you know yourself because I've been dealing with your the special operations veterans for 20 years now and you're all a lot more similar than you'd like to think. Mm-hmm. And I remember it's like, she touched me in a way that like for veterans feeling vulnerable and kind of like exposing the yourself in a way that we've never done before it almost feels like embarrassing or shameful. And when I talked to her that day, I felt a, a sense of relief come over me. And so I scheduled a follow-up appointment and I'm not embarrassed. I tell any veteran like to think that talking about your experience with someone isn't something that could be helpful. It's foolish to think that. I mean, of course, another human being can offer perspective and help you get through something. But for whatever reason, when I was younger, I, I thought that that would, it was a silly idea. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing a lot of counseling with her. And that also helped bring me to a point where I felt like I can reach out to her and I, I can tell this story now. Because I started to understand that working through problems and talking about things was something that just felt good. It felt right. And it was incredibly healing. And I knew that reaching out to her had the potential to do the same for her and also help heal me as well. And so that's that's why I ended up just ultimately making that decision. You know, from post-traumatic stress standpoint, I think you're hitting on a really important point, and that's if you could go back to that point of which you feel your post-traumatic stress began and you can actually communicate to somebody, especially close to you, a loved one or whatever, your spouse, um, I think that starts the healing process because then they understand if you know give enough details like you said you don't have to give all the details but it's amazing even the little pieces that they can glean from that to then understand what you're going through or have gone through to help you even get you know that much further in healing process uh-huh so critical and i also think you have to be in a place in your life where you're ready sometimes that's rock bottom unfortunately uh-huh i know for me like I'm sure, Paul, you, you experienced the same thing. As a young ranger, you don't have value on human life. It's like you shoot a guy and you high-five your buddy next to you and you're laughing like, yeah, I got him, you know? And I'm not saying that's bad because you're trained to go to combat. We can't shoot a guy and then be in tears about it for the next five hours, you know? But you diminish what human life is worth to a point where it's like it literally felt like playing a video game. And we would go, we would be in crazy gunfights and we'd go back to the chow hall that night and be laughing. And then we'd go work out and like, it was, it, 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 
there was no emotional attachment to it. And I don't necessarily think that that's bad. I think that's how we had to be. But for me, it was kind of a weird transition. Once I had my own kids, it made me value human life differently. And then that made me start to analyze like the things that we did and the things that I saw. Because I remember a specific incident. I was in Ramadi and uh, a car flipped over because we have you know, a security bubble around our convoys. And if they come within that, they're getting lit up. And a car came within that and uh, the, the top gunner lit him up. The car ended up flipping over and kids fell out of the car. Mm. And it was like... At that time, one of my buddies started like crying and he was like distraught. And the other guys on the team were like, hey, pussy, they're going to be fucking terrorists when they're 18 anyways. What are you crying about? And that was the mentality over there. And I look back on that now as a father. I have three young daughters. Like it's not healthy to to attach that kind of value or non-value to human life, you know? So for me, the struggle actually didn't come until I started to mature as a man and started to have different perspectives on on human life and and the value that I place on people. And that's why I think I don't I didn't have any type of you know PTSD or 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 feel like I needed counseling until I was, you know, in my early 30s. That's interesting you say that. I I can completely relate, you know, human life it's it's valuable as long as you got it. You know, uh-huh. I feel the exact same way. I found that the further along I went, the less I valued myself, like my own life. I just sort of like blanket term where we're all meat, just walking around meat bags. Hundred percent. Sooner or later, the axe falls and you're a meat bag too. And yep. so it doesn't really matter. You know, you, you watch enough people die, see that light fade, and you're like, that's nothing's happening. You just yep. you were a man, now you're meat. And uh, it took me. I'm still. I still struggle with that. You know, taking care of myself and, and putting emphasis on, and valuing my own life uh, enough to, to put effort into it. It's not healthy, that's for sure. And you know, so, something my therapist said to me to, to expound on exactly what you're saying. And this is when I realized she was good for me and I, I started coming back. She goes, let me ask you something. Did you think when you would deploy, did you think you would make it home? And I was like, nope. Absolutely not. I would always tell myself, this is the one that's going to get me. And I think, well, she told me, she goes, all of you special operations guys are the same way. That's a very common mindset. Because if you convince yourself that this is the deployment that's going to get you, it helps you operate with no fear. I mean, I was reckless in Ramadi. I remember on rooftops, mortars going off, snipers fire, like not caring at all like oh maybe i'll get shot today i hope i get shot between the eyes and i don't get shot in the neck and and gargle like a bitch on this rooftop and once you have come to terms with your own demise and accepted that you're gonna die she said you come home and you made it now what you know it's it's like you almost have to rewire your brain to be like okay now i'm gonna be a a 70 year old man that that Maybe I, maybe prostate cancer gets me or something, you know, whereas I was 100 percent convinced I was going to get blown up by an IED or shot by a sniper for a long time. And before you know it, you have to come to terms like, no, that's pa- that's the past. And now I have to rewire my brain to accept a future. But see, that's where some of the people have challenges, though, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is that euphoric high, that, you know, that rock star approach to walking out on stage and hearing the crowd roar. And then all of a sudden now, you know, the record label dumps you and you have nothing left and you're just your regular self and you've never dealt with just yourself. You you don't know who your identity is or what you're or you've been reprogrammed because you were the rock star and uh-huh. you're no longer the rock star anymore. You know, nobody cares. The big hair movement's over, you know? Yeah. You're the Home Depot shelf stalker. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And and that is uh, exactly some of the challenges. And you're absolutely right. It does seem to um, manifest itself a lot more in the special operations community because, again, of the op tempo, the number of missions and stuff, the the fact that you had to um, keep yourself in that euphoric high uh, and and, – and remain there in such a way from a mental approach so that you could be, you know, ready, 
you know, and, and now uh-huh. you come back to society, things are slower. You don't know where you fit. You don't have your buddies around because you're out in, you know, whatever, uh, Montana or Wyoming or Utah. Uh-huh. And are there no veterans around that understand the lifestyle that you went through? And, and that's what we're, we're finding, you know, and, um, I, I think it's, it's so important to stay connected, to find people, you know, whether it's your therapist that has helped you through some of that and then reconnect with the family and, um, you know, find yourself and your true passion and purpose or whatever it may be. You've got to find some way to do that. So you don't get stuck in the rut. Like we were talking about in the very beginning of those guys that want to be the ranger dude for the rest of their life. Yeah. No, like I don't, you're not going to see me walking around with a hat with my tab and scroll on it. You're not going to tattoo that. it on your shoulder. Your- yeah, no, oh, that's, okay. you know, it's, <laughs> <Not again>. uh, <laughs> and hey, <laughs> you know, like, you know, people have stickers and shirts and I have all that stuff too. But at the end of the day, it's not my identity anymore. Right. You know, and I think that's where you can be proud of what you did and you can, you can hold that in a high regard. And I still have the rifle that was presented to me when I ETS, you know, it's in my jujitsu Academy above my desk. I'm very proud of the regiment because without the regiment, I wouldn't have been able to move on and become who I am today. It was an integral part of developing me as a young man, but it's part of the development. It's not who you are. It doesn't define you for he- from here on out. You Amen. know, yeah, I had a good friend and he always says, this is the first chapter. It's not the end of the story. You uh, got a lot, a lot more to add, a lot more to write. It's important to remember that. And it's a young man's job. I mean, I look at myself now, I would be a terrible ranger. <laughs> yeah, Slow, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm cranky. I don't see as well. <laughs> and I'm young, you know, I'm, I'm not like, like Rob, <laughs> still a young man, and uh, Thanks, I would Paul. be terrible. I'd be terrible at it now, and that's you know you don't want to be the terrible ranger. You don't want to be the terrible soldier, the guy that can't keep up, and that's how that's how it goes. It's a young man's job. We're not young men anymore. Not only is it a young man's job physically, I think it's a young man's job psychologically. Yeah, because just I know for myself, I couldn't go out there and be on a rooftop taking fire, knowing like okay, I'm gonna get blown up today, and then. My wife and my daughters have nobody, you know, like in the crazy thing. I think about this a lot. There were guys on the team with wives and kids back home. And when I look back on that now, I'm like, how, how did you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, that would have been a big problem for me because it's easy to be reckless when it's just you. Like you said, like life comes and goes. I'm just a bag of meat and today might be my day, you know, and that's a hard perspective to have when people are relying on you. So I, I think what's great is that, um, you know, as you age, you end up getting wisdom from either the good that you did or the bad that you did throughout your life, but you're also starting to get a lot more clarity. And it sounds like, you know, that's what you're really sharing now to the young people who may be listening is that, you know, hey, it's okay to live in that moment at that time frame because that's where you are or where you are and the circumstances you're in and everything. But you also have to think about a little bit more about what may happen if you survive the combat. If you get back home, do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan? Are you going to decompress? You know, are you going to think about those loved ones and stuff? If you're a married guy, you know, are you going to try to reconnect and find something with them that fulfills your whole life? Or are you still going to try to be the rock star walking out on the stage and wondering why you don't hear the roar. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm telling you, that's what gets guys, you know, I think for me and, and like the other team leader in my squad, we're still like good friends and he lives locally here. He's outside of Seattle. We have found hobbies that we can really invest our time and energy into for him. It's downhill mountain bike racing. For me, it's jujitsu, you know, for some guys it's music for some guys it's writing. Like, but you have to have something to give your energy to. Because when you're a ranger, you're giving all of your energy 24-7 to something. And when you step outside of that, if, if guys don't have something to invest into, before you know it, like it becomes very common. They start investing in toxic paths. And like, how many rangers do we know that are alcoholics mm. or have, you know, fallen into drugs? Like it's, you know, it's, it's almost all of us have dealt with that at some point. And at the end of the day, you have to figure out, do we want to invest in something positive or you want to let the demons take control? Because they're there. They're waiting, you know? Yeah. Invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. And I think if you can't 
invest in yourself, I'll just add, like there's plenty of opportunities for you to invest in, in worthy causes. You know, for instance, I work at a, at a horse farm. We do therapeutic riding, especially okay. these children and veterans and, and people with injuries, stuff like that. And I don't, we're just starting our veterans program again this year. It was kind of dormant for a while. So I'm not completely invested in the mission of helping special needs children. To be honest, I think it's a great thing to do, but you know, if I wasn't doing it, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But what I am invested in is giving back to people that are helping their community, that are you know helping the people that need help and providing a, a safe place for them, and and that that rewards me. And I think that there's lots of places like that. You know? Absolutely. And I yeah. think that if it's not a hobby. You can go and do that, and it's a it's a little mini mission. It's a mini purpose. It's never going to be like being a ranger, but nothing is. Yeah, but I mean, at the, at the same time, I don't think I want to feel what it's like being a ranger anymore. Yeah, you know, I want to feel something different. Uh, I was actually contacted by some some former unit guys, and this is in its absolute infancy. There's there hasn't been much movement yet, but they want to set up something. There were so many Syrian and Iraqi children displaced during the rise and fall of ISIS and during these massive migrations of people trying to escape from like the reign of ISIS. And they went over there and there's camps that are just full of children with no parents, no family. There's nobody that they can, they have nobody to contact. And they're like, how about, you know, like we take this situation and bring it to the forefront and try and like, maybe match these kids with families and, and help adopt them out, something like that. I think that's where I'm at now. I want to I wanna combat the, the atrocities in this world with love as opposed to going over there and shooting people in the face, you know? Like, yeah. that's, that's what they want. That's what we're trained to do when we're young, and, and we're all jacked up about it. But now, as an older person with children, like, I still have a drive to want to do something, but I want to approach it from the complete opposite angle, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's funny too, because I've talked to some of my buddies who I was deployed with and we're almost 40 and I've had people tell me if you fucking adopt a little Iraqi girl, don't bring her around here, dude, that's a fucking enemy. And it's like, wow, you're still stuck in that, you know? Yeah. Like, I think we should move in the complete opposite direction because a a four-year-old girl is a four-year-old girl. I don't care where she is born. And once you have one and you hold her and you look at her, it, it changes your perspective on things. So, Have you ever uh, looked at combat flip-flops? Uh, Griff from combat flip-flops is a former ranger and his buddy who founded that. And I mean, it's the, uh, their, their tagline is unarmed forces. And it's the same thing. What they're doing through sale of their merchandise is actually not only employing um, women um, over there in the Middle East, but they're also trying to um, make it to where they can get an education through the income that they're bringing in. And their their approach to this is very similar to what you're talking about. In that society, the women are the ones that are raising the ch- uh, the children. So who better to be the influencer and the individual that can give a positive message through these children? Um, and if they can go by some way of helping these women become educated and send a positive message to stop war, because if you look at it, all societies that America especially deals with in commerce, we don't go to war with. It's the ones that we don't do commerce with that we uh-huh. end up going to war with. So it's a great concept from that perspective. But still yet, many people look at that and they go, yeah, but that's why, why aren't we doing and making those flip-flops and shoes here or those products here in America and putting you know, our kids through school and everything else? Yeah, but you, there's a bigger, broader world out there. It's about trying to make uh, an impact that hopefully can go and last a long time, like you're describing there. You know, not. No, I was familiar with that company, but I didn't know they were doing that. That's really interesting. That's yeah. cool. You know, and. You know, the older I get too, it's like I I, I want to be on Team Human at this point. Right. You know, it's not. I think the whole us versus them mentality. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you if you put me in a room today with some ISIS guys that needed to be taken care of, that would that'd be a good time. <laughs> you know, what even I mean? at like, forty, yeah, we're, yeah, we're all <laughs> we're always gonna have that in us, right? Yeah. There's certain people that don't need to be on Team Human, and if taking them out is part of the mission, then yeah, let's do it. But at the same time, all the people over there, the, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of people everywhere want the same thing. Yeah. They want a family that loves them. They want security. They want a house over their head. They want food. Like the basic human necessities 
it's it's the same thing anywhere you go on the planet Earth. So I, I don't know, man. I think it's it's easy to get caught up on Team America, but after seeing all this stuff, there should be no one should frown upon you for wanting to help the people over there. I mean, if anyone's allowed to, if anyone should be allowed to help the people over there, it's the people that were on the ground that saw that and realized, like, you know what? They're just people too. You know, right. Greg, I could probably go on and talk with you for another hour, brother. I mean, it's been really fun uh, getting down into all of these different topics because I think we covered so many things from whether it's, you know, dealing with the stress of combat, the situation of looking back on your memories and or stuff that you picked up in combat and helping somebody else dealing with their own grief or dealing with your own grief and anxiety and depression to military transition. I mean, I, I could go on and on of the topics that we talked about. They're all, sure. they're all great life lessons and all good things that people need to listen to for sure um, because uh, the great takeaways and nuggets. I think what we need to do is probably have you back on again, Greg, to talk about even more detail, some of these topics, if you're open to it, because I really enjoy the conversation. No, I really appreciated this. So yeah, whenever, whenever you guys like to do that, I'm down. All right. Sounds yeah, great, man. Me too. Again, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing the story. And I hope people go out and join our uh, groups page if they haven't already and, and look at that story that you go into great detail sharing, um, some of which you left off here, but you share a lot more of the details on the, the group page. And that's on our Mentors for Military Facebook uh, group page, closed group page. So uh, once again, Greg, thanks again, brother. And uh, All right. Appreciate having me, guys. Thank you. Thank Take care. You.